You're listening to another message from Generation City Church. One of the subjects that I don't speak a lot on as a pastor is is money. It's finances, giving, tithing, offerings, uh, stewardship. And and I, uh, I think, as I've said this before, the reason I don't speak a lot about it perhaps is because of the culture that we live in. Uh, thanks, guys. I should have let you go. Um, the culture that we live in, there's a mindset out there that the church is only after your money. That is not true. Um, but the reality is it does take money to run a church. It takes money to run a facility. Um, you know, it takes money to run air conditioners, to run lighting, to pay bills, to, uh, you know, basically take the message of the gospel, which is free, but getting it out there, you know, will take an appropriate use of our finances. And somebody on our team challenged me just a couple of weeks ago and said, you really haven't spoken about giving for a long, long time. And, uh, and so I just felt a real leap in my heart that maybe I should come back and do a message on tithing in particular, to talk about the biblical concept of tithing, to talk about how God views the practice of tithing and what the Bible actually does say about tithing. And uh, some of you probably think, well, the first place you'll go is Malachi chapter 3. It's not actually. Um, that just talks about the blessing of tithing. It doesn't tell us whether it's a, a New Testament practice or whether it's under the old covenant. We no longer are under that. We no longer have to do that. So let me just speak into this. But before I actually speak about tithing this morning and what tithing is and whether it is, in fact, a New Testament lifestyle practice for Christ followers... Let me, let me talk to you this morning about the importance that Jesus placed upon his followers being good managers of their money. The importance that Jesus placed upon financial stewardship in relation to the church fulfilling its mission. You see, Jesus saw the financial stewardship of his followers intrinsically linked to fulfilling the call of God upon our life. And, and the New Testament is very clear about that. It may not be as clear on the subject of tithing, but it's very, very clear when it comes to our financial stewardship, our management of our money, the, the, the money that we have. And the truth is, if you understand your Bible, the money that you have is not actually yours. It belongs to God. It's been entrusted to us to manage properly and to use it appropriately and biblically. And, and I know that because Psalm 24 verse 1 tells us that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The fullness. There. See, it all belongs to him. And I have had it entrusted to me. And he will call me to account one day for what I've done with the money that he has entrusted to me. And the Bible tells us that it's him that gives us the power to gain wealth. It's him that actually opens the doors of opportunity to bring increase into our life. In Luke chapter 15 and 16, Luke's gospel, chapters 15 and 16, Jesus presents a cluster of five parables, five illustrative stories that he, he brings to his disciples, but also to a group of scribes and Pharisees who were there in the context of his teaching session. And Luke 15 and 16 is actually one teaching session. It's the same 
the same geographical location, the same discourse, the same situation. Luke 15 flows into 16. And in, in the original text, there was no chapter breaks. There was no verses. There was no punctuation. It just all flowed. And when you study it, Luke 15 and 16 is, is one teaching session given by Jesus. And he gives it in response to a shocking religious attitude towards lost and broken people. He teaches these five parables in response to what he sees as a disgusting attitude towards broken, lost, hurting, messed up, wounded people. The backdrop for this teaching session in Luke 15 and 16 is actually found in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. Let me read it to you. Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 13. Then he, Jesus, went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus. Some translations say, you know, irreputable people, colorful people, you know, really, really colorful people were hanging around Jesus. I find that fascinating. They were drawn to him. They weren't afraid of him. They weren't rejected by him. They were drawn to him. He, he had a warmth about him towards broken people, towards lost people. And we are called to be his followers. We're called to actually be his body on the earth today. So we too should reflect the same attitude towards lost and broken people. But they sat together with Jesus and his disciples. There were many of them and they followed him. But when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. They were offended by it. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What happened at that point? His disciples lent in. What's he going to say? What will he say to these scribes, these Pharisees, these religious people who had a shocking attitude towards lost and broken people? Well, Luke chapter 15 and 16 gives us the detail of what he actually said. And in Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, we read that then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and even eats with them. Then Jesus tells... Three parables of the five. There are five in the teaching session. A parable is an illustrative story, trying to get across a principle or a teaching or an understanding. And he tells three of the five parables. And the first one is the parable of the lost sheep. We all know it. The, the, the shepherd who has a hundred sheep, one goes astray. He leaves the 99 and goes looking for the one. And the point of the parable, the point that Jesus is trying to get across here is that that one lost person, one lost, broken person outside of the love of God, outside of the forgiveness of God, outside of the grace of God, one lost, broken person matters enormously to Jesus. And his point is that the 99 found, saved, secure, Sheep don't create the same level of urgency in the heart of God that one lost soul creates. 
They, they just don't, you know, they're, they're in the fold, they're safe, they're secure, and, and they don't create the same level of concern that one lost sinner outside of the flock of God creates. And, and the, the concept that he presented often contradicts so much attitude in today's church. We can be so introspective that church is all about me. It's all about my growth. It's all about my development. It's all about God helping me. It's all about God blessing me. It's all about God providing for me. It's all about I've received Jesus. Now I want him to do everything for me. Now I want him to go before me. Now I want him to pave the way. Now I want him to, to give me everything I need and everything I want. And it becomes all about me. And, and we've got so many offended Christians in church today. Because God hasn't done what they hoped or thought he would do or thought he should have done. And we become so introspective and so focused on those inside the flock that we lose sight of those that are so desperate outside the flock. And Jesus is saying this, you, you know, he, he, they were repulsed by him dining with irreputable, colorful people. And he looked at them and he said, what shepherd who has a hundred sheep loses one, doesn't leave the 99 and go looking for it. And then he, he, he comes back and he says this, he said, it's the sick that need the physician, not the healthy. And that parable closes with the words, more joy in heaven over one sinner who returns to God than over 99 who haven't straight away. So you see, we, uh, we need to become very, very aware of the desperation of those lost outside of the kingdom. He then tells a second parable. It's a parable of a lost coin. And he talks about a woman who loses this coin and she so appreciates the value of what has been lost. So he's not talking about sheep. He's not talking about coins. He's talking about lost people. He's telling a story to get us to understand how, how, much of a priority lost and broken people is to him and therefore should be to those who follow him. So he tells the story about this woman and he says she so appreciates the value of what's been lost. She had 10 coins, loses one. She develops a strategy and she moves the furniture and she moves systematically through the house, sweeping every corner, every nook and cranny until she finds the coin, until she finds what has been lost. And the point of the parable is not so they have a nice bedtime story. The point of the parable is so they understand that if you develop a strategy, you can find lost people. If you get a heart for lost people, if you get a compassion and a sense of burden for lost people and you develop a strategy, you, you walk with the Holy Spirit and allow Him to speak to you, you can actually find lost, broken people who Jesus came looking for and died for and gave His best for. And then that parable closes, of course, with there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Then he tells the third parable. We're still in Luke chapter 15. And it's the parable that everybody knows, the parable of the prodigal son. But it's actually a parable, a story about two sons. It's a story about a father who had two sons. One son who is lost outside of his father's house. And it's about the other son who was lost inside his father's house. And what happens is the son who is lost outside the father's house comes to his senses. He's squandered everything. He's, he's been into loose living. He's been into wild living. He's tried everything. He's been everywhere. And he's blown everything that he had on, on wasteful squandering of his life. Comes to his senses and he returns home. And the father in the story is so ecstatic. He's so excited that he throws a, 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 a celebration, a huge 
party, a huge ticker tape parade to celebrate the recovery of his son that he had cried himself to sleep over night after night. And he is so excited. They kill the fatted calf. They put a robe on him. They put a, a, a expensive ring on his finger. And he says, this son of mine who was lost has now been found. This son of mine who was dead is now alive again. And he celebrates appropriately. Now, he's not telling them the nice bedtime story. He's actually saying that's people who are separated from God. But then he, he has the son who is lost inside the house. And the son who is lost inside the house gets angry over the celebration. And he comes to his father and he says, he says I, I, I come home every night from work in your fields. I come home every night. I've served your purpose. I've, I've served faithfully. I've served diligently. I have been there every moment of every day. I've never left. I've stayed loyal. I've stayed faithful. I've stayed consistent in doing your will, in, in fulfilling your purposes. And, and you know, I, I, have, I have been there, but you have never once thrown anything like this for me. But drop kick over here. You know, he... He has squandered your entire superannuation. He has spat in your face and he comes home and you do this for him. You know, it's like, I didn't come home from the pub tonight, Dad. I came home from working the tractor and you've never once done, done this for me. Jesus continues the story and says, the father basically says to the son inside the house, two things you've got to understand. He said, the first thing you've got to understand, son, is that if you are in my house, everything I have is yours. If you are saved, if you are in the kingdom, if you are born again, everything God has is yours. You're his child. You're his son. You're his daughter. And, and that's the trouble with the church today. Is so many Christians are in the house, but they're still lost in the house because they don't know who they are in Christ they don't know what they have in Christ. They don't know what resources they can access in, in, in the, the storehouses of their father. They have no understanding, no concept. And therefore, they get angry when others come in who are seemingly you know, living these lives of, of, of extravagant squander and wastefulness. And they come in and all of a sudden they get blessed and God touches them and God heals them. It's like, I've been in the church 40 years and I've never got healed. It happens all the time in the house. Somebody walks through the door who, who's just lived this abhorrent lifestyle and then God blesses them. And then we get angry Christians inside the house. He says to him, he says, son, you've got to understand everything I've got is yours. But the other thing he said you've got to understand is that it's appropriate for me to make my focus of joy on this brother of yours who was lost. Because he said, you see, every morning, he said, son, you woke up in my house blessed, covered, protected. You had everything. But he said every morning that he was out there, he woke up unprotected, unblessed. And he said, if his heart had stopped beating, there was no future. So he said, it's appropriate that you understand that he's come home and it's great that he's come, he's come to his senses. You've got to understand this. If you don't get this, there's something awfully wrong with your doctrine is really what he says to the son. They're the three parables that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 15. They demonstrate God's priority for lost people. Now, this is where we can miss the flow of what Jesus is trying to teach us. Those three parables are pretty simply understood. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. 
okay, God's about finding lost people. That's his priority. That should be our priority because we say we follow him. We are meant to be the body of Christ on earth, which is an extension of what he values, what his priorities are, should be our priorities. The very next thing in Luke chapter 16, verse 1, he turns to his disciples and he gives them the fourth parable of the five. And it's the parable of the irresponsible manager. The manager who was entrusted with his master's resources and squandered it on himself and didn't use it for his master's purposes. Here's the point. When you realize that God's highest priority is lost people, he's saying with this parable, you better also realize that to reach and win back lost people will take an appropriate use of your finances. It will take an appropriate and godly use of what God has entrusted to us. Fulfilling the Great Commission, church, is not just about praying more. It's not just about fighting the devil more, but it's also about understanding that the assets and income that God has entrusted to us as his manager, as his steward, are the means by which he wants to get the job done. He tells the parable to say, I have entrusted you with resources and you need to understand that opening our wallet and, and, and supporting kingdom purpose, kingdom strategy, kingdom issues of reaching lost and broken people and seeing them established, seeing them delivered, seeing them healed, seeing them grow in their relationship with God is going to take an appropriate use of our finances. He says in verse 9 of that parable, I tell you, use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. In this way, your generosity stores up a reward for you in heaven. And he's saying, if, if my people... So he tells the three parables, lost, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Then he talks about the irresponsible manager. And he's saying in this, if you just dig a little deeper, he's saying, if my people, my followers would just understand that life on this earth is but a brief window of opportunity to get the job done, to reach out and embrace lost people and restore lost people and to win the treasure of friends who will live on in eternity. That's the point of the parable. If they will just get that what I have entrusted to them is the means to do that, then they'll be really smart. But he says, if you don't get that, you're a fool. Now, you've got to understand the Pharisees were middle-class businessmen. They were very, very wealthy and they lived extravagant lives. And we read in this whole story, they dearly loved their money and they, they found the parable offensive and they, and they, they scoffed at Jesus. They, you see, the idea of moderating their lifestyle in order to help those who are desperate and lost had never entered their head. Never, ever crossed their minds. So they begin to mock Jesus and they begin to jeer at Jesus. And then Jesus looked at him and says, you think that's funny? Let me tell you another story. And then he tells the fifth parable. And the fifth parable is probably the most desperate of all stories Jesus ever told in the Bible. It's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man lives in a mansion. And he says he had everything. 
He had, he had maids, he had servants, he had butlers, he had everything at his fingertips, everything he ever wanted. He lived an extravagant life of comfort. Now, when you look at the story, it's assumed by the way Jesus tells the story that this man grew up in the synagogue. He attended the synagogue. He went to church, if you like. And he understood the ways of God. He understood the law of God. He sat under the teaching of God, but he had become so introspective. He'd become so focused upon his own lifestyle, his own wants, his own desires, God blessing him. And, and, and it can be assumed that he saw all of his lifestyle of extravagance as being the blessing of God. But Jesus said outside his gate, there was a poor, sick, broken, lost, hurting man who lived in desperate need of this man's stewardship. I encourage you to go home and devour Luke 15 and 16. Read it in a number of translations. It's one teaching session, one story, one message after another. And he says, this, this guy was such, in such desperate need of this, this rich man's stewardship. And then he says, but the rich man died. And he says, and went to hell. And he says, and the poor man died, and he went to Abraham's bosom. And he says in the story, the rich man looked across this great dark chasm and saw the poor man sitting with Abraham, being comforted, being cared for, being soothed, being looked after, being nursed, I suppose. And, and he cries out to Abraham. He says, Abraham, he said, send him over with a cup of water to soothe my thirst, to, cut, to quench my thirst. Send him over. And Abraham said, I can't. There's no way you can come over there and I can come over there. And he said, well, then send somebody back to my family and tell them about this place. You see, he finds himself now suddenly interested in evangelism. You read it. It's It's fascinating. Suddenly now in this place, he recognizes he's lost his brief window of opportunity to reach lost people, to help lost people, to use the assets and resources that God has given him in order to bless others, make friends that will live on in eternity with him. He realizes now he's lost it. So he's saying, send somebody back to warn my family. But of course, it doesn't happen. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus tells us very, very clearly that we need to take our Bibles and we need to focus upon God's priorities and we need to commit ourselves to living out those priorities. If you think financial stewardship is an optional extra as a Christ follower, I don't really know what Bible you're reading. Now, let me ask you a question. Although it might be clear from what I've just shared with you, from those parables, from that teaching session, Although it might be clear that financial stewardship is required of followers of Christ today, is tithing a New Testament principle? Is it appropriate for someone today who professes to follow Jesus to take the first 10% of their income, of their increase, the first 10% and sow it into the church that Jesus is building? Is it appropriate today for that to happen? Is it appropriate for us to, to earmark the first 10%? If you earn $500 to take 50, before you do anything else, you take 50 and you say, that belongs to God. You put it in the offering to build the church that Jesus said he's building, to grow the church that Jesus said he's growing. Is that appropriate for that to happen? Well, in order to answer that question, it raises the question of how you actually read your Bible. Is it correct to take Old Testament verses and apply them 
to a New Testament lifestyle? You know, the simple answer to that question is in some cases, absolutely. In other cases, absolutely not. Because the cross of Jesus Christ is the filter through which we determine what Old Testament verses apply and what Old Testament verses don't. Many people hold the belief, if it's Old Testament, it doesn't apply to us. Nothing could be further from the truth. You see, Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the Old Testament has been recorded for our instruction so that we will learn by it, so that we will grow by it, so that we cannot make the same mistakes that those that have gone before us will make. And so you can't just do a blanket. We're under the New Testament. We're not under the Old Testament, the New Covenant, not the Old Covenant. Therefore, the Old Covenant doesn't apply. You might as well rip the Old Testament out of your Bible and throw it away. You see, that's not how the Bible sees it. That's not how Jesus sees it. In fact, you've got to understand when the church first started, they didn't even have a New Testament. They did all their preaching out of the Old Testament. All their preaching was Old Testament scriptures. But you see, they now viewed those scriptures through a New Testament mindset. They viewed those promises, those commandments, those declarations, those ordinance through the spectacles of the cross. And it's appropriate with some things in the Old Testament to still live by them today. But it's inappropriate for some to not live by them today. Let me give you a couple of examples of what that is in the time we've got left. The sacrificial Passover lamb. For those of you who know the story, Exodus chapter 12, it's when the people of God are about to be delivered out of Israel. And the Lord says to them, take a, a lamb for every household without spot, without blemish. I want you to slaughter the lamb, cut its throat, let its blood run out into a cup. I want you to take the blood, paint it over the doorpost. The angel of death is going to pass over Egypt. And it's going to cause havoc, but I'm going to protect you. But I'll only protect those who had the blood over the doorpost. That, that's the... The ordinance of the sacrificial Passover lamb. You read about it in Exodus chapter 12. And he says to his people, when I take you out of Egypt and I take you into the land that I've, I've promised to give you, you will do this consistently. It will be, listen to this, an everlasting ordinance. In other words, it'll never stop. It will always be an ordinance. And of course, we know the application of that today is the blood of Jesus Christ covers us. The blood of Jesus Christ protects us. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus was our Passover lamb that takes away the sin of the world. But it says it's an everlasting ordinance. It'll never stop. Now, Joel touched on this last Sunday when he preached, I have never been in a church where we've slit the throat of a lamb. But it's an everlasting ordinance. We should be still doing it. Because it says this you will do. As an everlasting ordinance, you will continue to do it. But I have never... But so so have, have we been disobedient to that? Uh, should we be still fulfilling the sacrificial Passover lamb? We well, see the answer to that question is found through the lens of the New Testament. That the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, we read that the blood of the last Passover lamb, which was who? Jesus. His blood still avails. So it still is an everlasting ordinance. His blood still avails. So it's not a matter of, well, we'll, we'll stop doing that. No, we keep doing it, but we don't have to kill any more animals. It's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. 
But Jesus came to take away sin, to remove sin, and his blood still avails today. John 1.29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But watch this, 1 Corinthians 5.7, therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. But here's the clincher, Hebrews 10.12, this man Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. So you see, some passages in the Old Testament don't continue into the New. Don't miss this. They're only going out to make coffee. Don't, don't be bothered by that. Some passages in the Old Testament do not continue into the New. Why? Because Jesus fulfills them. You get that? Here's another one. Right out of the Ten Commandments. The Old Testament says, do not commit murder. Well, we're not under that anymore. I don't like you. I'm not under the old covenant. Come on, don't judge me. I know a few people that can do things on the side for a little bit of, you know, I can just take care of you. I mean, it may be against the law of the land, but hey, I'm not under that. I'm under a higher authority. I'm under God and I'm not under the old covenant. The old covenant says you shall not commit murder. So does that mean we can now commit all the murder we want? You see, let's, let's view the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount takes this one and believes it's as appropriate today as it was back then in the law. And he doesn't just say, oh, look, this one you're going to continue with. He actually enlarges it. He said, you, you've read in the law that you shall not commit murder. He said, but I say to you, you hold a grudge against your brother. You hold unreasonable anger and bitterness and resentment and you want revenge from a brother. You've already committed murder in your heart. I say to you, deal with the anger in your heart. So Jesus takes this from the Old Testament and he commands for it to continue. So there are some things in the old that need to continue into the new. Here's another one. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. What happened to that? What happened to that as we pass through the cross? Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Does it continue into the New Testament? Does it change into something different? As it passes through the cross, is it now obsolete as a result of the cross? What, what actually happened to that? Well, what does the New Testament have to say about the Sabbath day? It says this in Romans chapter 14, verse 5 and 6. I haven't got all the verses up. I don't know whether that one's there. Yeah, it's up there because I've got so many here. Romans 14, verse 5 and 6. In the same way, someone, some think one day is more holy than another. While others think every day is alike. You should each be fully convinced that whatever day you choose is acceptable. It's a matter of conscience. So you, if you want to be a seven-day Adventist, it's okay. Go and do it. Because it's a matter of conscience. The New Testament clarifies this one is different, this side of the cross. Now it's a matter of if you want to have Sunday as the Lord's Day and you want to just say, I don't do any work on Sunday or Saturday, whatever day you want to have, you just pick that day and you say, I'm going to do all the cooking the day before. I'm going to rest. I'm going to look after my body. I'm going to do it. You know, that's okay. But if you, if you want to have a different day, that's okay too. Or if you just want to see every day as I'm here to live for the Lord every day, he's saying that's okay as well. So you can't now say, well, you know, I'm not under the old covenant. I don't have to do that or I need, you know, you've got to see the old covenant through the lens of the new covenant. What about tithing? What, what about tithing? Shouldn't it be the same as the Sabbath? Shouldn't we just be able to tithe if we feel to tithe? 
Well, it's interesting. I've been around long enough to know that most people who think that way never seem to get the feeling. <laughs> what about tithing? Where, where does tithing fit in our situation today, if it does even fit at all? And it's found in Leviticus 27, the tenth of the produce of your land. You say, oh, well, I'm not a farmer. That counts me out. It's talking about increase, income. You know, they were all farmers back then. He says, a tenth of your increase belongs to the Lord, and it must be set apart to him as holy. You know, the very first time tithing is mentioned in the Bible, it's mentioned prior to the law ever being given. It's mentioned pre-law, and it's in Genesis 14, where Abraham tithes to the priest Melchizedek. Now, I don't have time to go into all of this this morning, but I want to encourage you, register for Hebrews in School of the Bible. This stuff is in Hebrews. We read that... Jesus is a high priest to us after the same order of Melchizedek. We don't know much about Melchizedek. There's no record of his beginning. There's no record of his end. There's nothing about him. He just appears. When Abraham has, has plundered this land, he comes back. He gives Melchizedek a tenth. That's all we know. And then way over in the New Testament, we read that Jesus is now our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so there it is right now. The very first mention of a priesthood is in Genesis 14 and the tithe is brought to the priest. And it's Melchizedek. Then when the law is established, God establishes an official priesthood and he says the same thing. He said, that tithe that you did back then, now I want you to bring it to the Levites, the official priesthood that I'm establishing. And I want you to lay it at their feet. And the Levites could not actually work the land. They couldn't earn an income. He said, you will live off the tithe of the rest of the tribes of Israel. And that will be your portion. They can go and get increased, but you'll just live off the tithe of their increase because I want you to do a special work and a special focus. And then in Hebrews 10, uh, 5 verse 10, God designated Jesus to be high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he, Melchizedek, remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. So the Lord establishes this, this priesthood in Numbers 18, and the tithe is then brought to that lot of priests. The tithe funded the work of God. That, that's the point of the tithe. It funded, I'm not saying today the tithe belongs to me. It doesn't. I, I'm not the high priest. Jesus is the high priest. The tithe does not, I don't, you know, some people have said, oh, you know, you work one day a week and you get all the offering. You know, well, I wish. <laughs> doesn't happen you see the tithe funded the work of God it funded the work of God the question is this though is tithing finished with in the New Testament that's what it did in the old is it finished with has it changed into something different this side of the cross or is it still a vital part of kingdom life the key to it understanding this the key to it is found in 1 Corinthians 9 it's not found in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. That's talking about free will offerings. You go in and read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It's talking about free will offerings over and above the tithe. The key to understanding tithing in the New Testament today is found in the passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And in this passage, I'm going to read it to you very quickly. It'll come up on the screen. Paul says, This is my answer to those who question my authority. Don't we have the right to live in your homes and share your meals? Don't we have the right to bring a believing wife with us as the other apostles and the Lord's brothers do and as Peter does? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have to work to support ourselves? 
What soldier has to pay his own expenses? What farmer plants a vineyard and doesn't have the right to eat some of its fruit? What shepherd cares for a flock of sheep and isn't allowed to drink some of the milk? Am I expressing merely human opinion or does the law say the same thing? Whoa, hang on a minute, Paul. We're not under that. We're under the new covenant. But here's Paul, the apostle of the new covenant, reaching back into the Old Testament to grab something that he is convinced still applies today. He says, doesn't the law say the same thing? For the law of Moses says you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. Was God thinking only about oxen when he said this? Wasn't he actually speaking to us? Yes, it was written for us so that the one who plows and the one who threshes the grain might both expect a share of the harvest. Since we have planted spiritual seed among you, aren't we entitled to a harvest of physical food and drink? If you support others who preach to you, shouldn't we have an even greater right to be supported? But we have never used this right. We would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Jesus. Don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple? See, he's teaching about the Levitical priesthood. They weren't allowed to work the land. They weren't allowed to go out and, and get engaged in assets. He said, all the others can do that, but you can't. It's like, oh, that's really unfair. Now, hang on a minute. You can have 10% of what they gain because I want you to focus on something else. So he's pulling back out of the Old Testament. And he said, don't you realize those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple and those who serve at the altar get a share of the sacrificial offerings. Watch this, verse 14. In the same way. It does say that, doesn't it? Now, this is New Testament. In the same way, the Lord suggested. Oh, no, it doesn't say that, does it? Well, that's a heavy word, isn't it? The Lord that we claim to follow ordered. Ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. Doesn't God's law say the same thing. Paul reaches back and takes something from the Old Testament that he believes is just as relevant today as it ever was. And if the New Testament says it belongs this side of the cross, who are we to ignore it? In the same way, the Lord gave orders. Those who say that tithing does not belong in the lifestyle of a New Testament believer has no idea that the Lord ordered something. Our commander-in-chief has given us a directive in the same way that the work of God was funded. Now, I know that all looks like, hey, this is all about me doing this and I need to be looked after by you. It's not. It's bigger than that. Paul actually said, I've chosen not to take it. You see, he, he, he drew a line for it. So this is not about that. The point is, in the same way the work of God was funded then, is the same way that God funds the work today. The, the church is Christ reconciling the world to the Father. And it costs, it costs to win and reach lost people. And we need to recognize an appropriate use of our finances is to be applied to building the church, which is the hope of the world. There are a lot of lost people out there. Let's not be the 99 fat found people who are sitting here getting spiritually fat, overweight, consumed on one sermon after another. Let's actually get a burden for lost people and let's sow financially into the reaching of lost people. And it's not just about getting them saved. It's winning the lost and growing the saved. It's about establishing facilities and processes and programs and ministries that will take that, that found sheep now to a place of health and wholeness and restoration. And it costs resource to actually do that. 
But yet we still have Christians who say, shouldn't we be able to just give as, the, as we feel? I should be able to just give as I feel. As I feel. First Corinthians chapter 9 doesn't care how you feel. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. In the same way, the Lord gave orders. Now let me say this as I wrap this up. I don't know who tithes and who doesn't. And I don't want to know. It's not my business. It's between you and God. So it's not about, well, what if I don't feel to do this? That's up to you. I'm just here telling you what the Bible says. Now, whether you tithe or not, it's totally between you and God. I don't know. We don't keep a record. We don't need to know. If you put your tithe directly, electronically into the church bank account and you put your name on it, that's been your call. We haven't asked for that. But I don't go looking to say who's tithing and who's not. It's between you and God. But what my point is, I'm not the high priest. You do not bring the tithe to me. You bring the tithe to Jesus who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in the same way, I built what my work in the Old Testament is the same way I want it built in the New Testament. I want you to bring the tithe to the storehouse. Now, some of you, it's a foreign concept and you think, I can't afford to tithe. Let me, let me show you what will happen as I land this thing right now. Malachi chapter 3. I'm going to close with it. Verse 8 through 12. Should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? How have we ever cheated you? You know, you've cheated me, he says, in tithes and offerings. Some translations say, you've robbed me. You've taken what's not. You see, biblically, the tithe belongs to God. It's not yours in the first place. You get $500 a week, that first $50 belongs to him. It's not yours to determine, well, will I give it or won't I? It's not yours to say that. The tithe belongs to the Lord. You have cheated me in tithes and offerings that have been due to me. And then he says, you are under a curse. The whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple, in my house. That's what the tithe comes in. So, so that we can actually run a life ship in the middle of this city and have the resources that is necessary to help broken people find their way into a full life, the abundant life that Jesus said was theirs. He says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there'll be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try me, put me to the test. Some of you are going, oh, well, I tithe for three weeks and nothing happened. <laughs> it's got to be a lifestyle. I've been tithing faithfully. Margot and I have tithed faithfully all of our Christian life. Not just since we went into the ministry. We've tithed wherever we've gone, whether we've been in full-time ministry, paid ministry, or otherwise. We have tithed faithfully the whole way. And believe me, we have had seasons where we've been skint. But you don't sit down and say, well, I'm tithing. Why is this happening? No, I learn to be content in whatever situation I'm in. But let me tell you something. I'm still sitting here. Still blessed, still growing, still increasing. I still survive those seasons of drought, those seasons of lack, those seasons of disappointment and discouragement. I came through the other side, but so many people go, oh, this, this shouldn't be happening. I'm going to stop tithing. You then compound the problem. Test me in this, the Lord says, and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out so much blessing upon your life that you won't contain it. Don't say, I can't afford to tithe. Say, I can't afford not to tithe. You take that first thing. Put it in there and say, God, breathe on the rest. He can do more with the 90% 
that is honoring to him if we will just be obedient to his word? Are we following him? Jesus said, you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say. In the same way, the Lord gave orders. The same way the work of God was funded then, it should be funded now. My time's up. Father, I pray this morning. I thank you, Lord, firstly, that this is a great, generous church. And Lord, I pray that hearts right now would go away and chew on the Word, would process the Word, would meditate the Word, would, would prayerfully ask you to guide them and direct them, give them the courage and the strength to rise up and decide, yes, I'm going to be a good steward. I'm not going to be an irresponsible manager like you said in Luke 16. I, I want to be a responsible manager, a faithful manager, someone who diligently works what you have blessed me with so that I might live life to the full with an open window of heaven above me so that I can continue to be a blessing. Father, I pray that you would breathe upon the resources of this house, cause them to grow and expand and enlarge that they might become a blessing to this broken city. In Jesus' name. I, I called a special meeting in June, spoke to the congregation about some challenges, some issues, and I made a statement in there. And I, I just want to say this, because I, I just am very, very aware sometimes people don't hear exactly what you say. But I said in there, in the 18 years that we've been pastoring this church, I have never, ever taken anything other than a board-approved wage. I don't set my wage. The board sets my wage. And I've never asked for any increases. I've never asked for more than what they have offered me. And I'm not planning to do that. And I don't want to start doing that. And I'm not looking to do that. I'm not needing. God is my source of supply. So please understand, when your tithe goes into our offering, it doesn't go to me. It doesn't buy my new Harley. It doesn't, it doesn't go to me. It goes to the work of fulfilling the vision that God has given this house. And it's all about the priority of lost, broken, hurting people, seeing them discipled and released into the abundant life Jesus said he died to give them. Is that okay? Come on, let's stand together.